This episode is brought to you by Time Extension, the website dedicated to the world of retro and classic video gaming. Time Extension features interviews with the creators of your favourite games, reviews of the latest mini consoles and remasters, and guides to the best games of yesteryear. Visit timeextension.com to learn more about classic games, the best ways to play them today, and the human stories behind their creation. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games a bit like songs often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is an American writer for some of the funniest video games yet made. In the 90s, he and a friend founded the website Old Man Murray, a satirical online publication that poked fun at video gaming sacred cows and established a tone still prevalent across the internet today. The site was read by Gabe Newell, creator of Half-Life, who later hired both writers. At Valve, my guest collaborated on a new game in which a vindictive artificial intelligence chastises players as they solve a series of puzzle rooms using a gun that fires warp points. Portal became a smash hit. Stephen Merchant, co-creator of The Office, voiced a character in the sequel. And today, my guest continues to work as a semi-retired contractor for Valve. 
In defence of games, I want to point out that the writing in plays, including everything by August Strindberg and The Lion King, is 100% pure crap, he once joked. So we're doing better than they are, even though they have the benefit of mostly not being about space marines. Welcome, Eric Walpole. Thanks for having me. That's uh, I was literally last night watched on Netflix. It just came through my queue, Kunk on Earth. Have you seen that? So good. I watched one of those last night. That's bizarre. Anyway, there's a Lion King gag right in the first episode uh, about the artifacts of humanity that uh, should be saved. Yeah. <laughs> so w- when we were talking about um, having you having you on the podcast, you said that one of the reasons you'd be eager to do it is that you like to sometimes make public appearances where you put pressure on Valve to start work on Portal Three. I like I know you're you're joking to a certain degree, but w- why can't you just start making it? <laughs> oh, it's uh, yeah, it, it is a joke. But uh, I mean, the the real reason is in a flat structure like Valve, there is a opportunity cost to doing anything and you know whatever is going on at valve right now requires the dedication and participation of the people working on it and it's voluntary so to some extent i you know i would like to make a portal three but i understand that other than the fact that i'm largely joking when i say it just to give valve some people i work with some crap it is to really go out and advocate for something like that, could it be destructive? Just in the sense that you don't want to cause internal strife, which I guess I am doing, but I think people understand that it's, or the people who uh, could be disturbed by it internally understand that it's it's just me uh, joking around. Yeah, sure. I mean, okay, as, a, as an observer who knows nothing about the way Valve works or anything like that, it can seem a bit like a few years ago, uh, Valve establishes Steam, which is essentially, you know, iTunes for for video games. And it becomes this gigantic success, right? And is making huge amounts of money. Like I spoke to Tarn Adams the other day for this podcast, and he told me that just last month, Dwarf Fortress earned $7.2 million. And that's after Steam has taken its 30%, right? And it can just seem a bit like, oh, you, the company has switched from like making some of the best video games ever, uh, this really like creative venture to like almost being like shopkeepers or, or distributors or something. And that just can feel a little bit sad. Is that a, is that a true characterization of the situation or not? I don't think so. I mean, to whatever extent you appreciated Alex, the you know, we released that. I think long tail games affected that in a way that maybe is more impactful than Steam. Keeping CSGO and Dota, I'm not sure if I'm forgetting anything. Right. For a small company, the thing is, Valve is not a giant company. I, I think people sometimes think it is because of the outsized influence of Steam, but it's not really that many people. So, you know, it, it takes... It takes manpower to keep Dota going. Keep takes manpower to keep CS:GO going, and the freeform nature of Valve means that there are a lot of experiments that simply fail. So things are happening. If you were inside Valve, you would think that stuff was always going on because it is. Yeah. And you know, as much as I enjoy the things I worked on at Valve and my time at Valve. And it's important to me. If I had to choose between Valve's games and Steam, which I feel like is the most democratizing 
technology that ever came out for game, to to allow people to create games, game creators to actually make games and get them in front of people, I guess I would choose Steam. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, in no way am I putting um, shade on Steam, which I totally agree. It enables game developers of all sizes. Just if you're one person in a in a bedroom, you can get your game out to the whole world, which is extraordinary, obviously. But I guess it's just that, you know, sometimes you see in the world how success can appear to stifle creativity. And I suppose there's just that sort of slight, um, not concern, but just, you know, sad feeling that we can't have both. And you know what I, I mean? I think, take everything I say with a grain of salt, because much like anyone entrenched in some system, I don't have the 100,000 foot view. I'm, I, my view is very subjective. I think that the problem people always, and I probably have done it myself, more joking than anything else, the problem is a money problem, but it's not a money problem. It's a manpower Dang. problem. You know, you have to pick what you're going to work on and time is limited. So yeah, it's going to be a limiting factor. Now, I guess to some extent we, and we, Hey, look, everybody's tired. We had a, we had a good run. If you, if you look from 2000, when I started in 2004 to the release of portal in February or March, March of 2011, Valve released a crap load of games in that time. Episode 1, Episode 2, Portal, Team Fortress 2, Left 4 Dead 1, Left 4 Dead 2, and Portal 2, plus updates to a bunch of those games and DLCs and all sorts. That was a that was a busy time. We, maybe we should have spread that out across like 10 more years. And it, would, <laughs> it would have seemed uh, like yeah. we were doing more. Yeah, I mean, that release of, it was called The Orange Box, wasn't it, that that had a bunch of those games all packaged together. I mean, it felt like a miracle, <laughs> just all of these incredible games all coming in a single package. The first time we get to experience them, there's, there's probably never been anything like that since in terms of just sheer value of for money of the to quality ratio. Probably not. I mean, it's a miracle to me that it shipped because... Valve was as small as Valve is now. It was even smaller back then. And the fact that those five games, even the ones that were done, I think got achieved, you know, they all required work to get them out and to get them out on consoles. Was it on? I think it was on the consoles too. It was on Xbox, wasn't it? Yeah, it was on Xbox 360. Yeah. I think Greg Coomer was the um, person at Valve tasked with coming up with the cover art for it. And it was an impossible situation because it, no matter what you do, it is going to look like a value software, uh, like the 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 four ninety nine Walmart special. Uh, yeah, greatest his collection. He, he did as good as anybody, I suppose, could. But yeah, that was a tough. That was a tough ask. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I I suppose it's just you know Valve suffers a bit from the like you say it's a, a small, relatively small company full of very talented people but just has this outsized image because of the prevalence of steam like everyone in the world knows what steam is and knows that valve's behind it so it's that disparity isn't it between the profile perhaps and then the like you say the the manpower um in the office that some of that so those questions come from don't they yeah and it well yeah it's just tough and to some extent if valve had only made steam we wouldn't be having any of these conversations but there's this perceived golden era of where they were also 
releasing games, like I said, more frequently, you know, for a variety of reasons that either because of structure or blind luck or a mixture of the two of them, the games that were released were all pretty good. They were, you know, memorable games. Mm. Yeah, pretty much so. Okay, so the, the, the format of the podcast is I'm asking to pick the five video games you want to put on your perfect um, mini console. Uh, could you start by just telling us the, the first game that you'd like to put on and when, when you first encountered yeah. it in your but life? First, I just want to preface this whole list with saying you can go to hell with this five game list because <laughs> it's, in, it's ridiculous to pick five games. If you, if you ask me to pick the five most important Soulsborne games by FromSoft, I would have a hard time <laughs> compiling that list. And I think there's only six of them. So like the entire history of gaming, and I'm old enough that I started with Pong. So yeah, it's it's tough. Uh, having said that, it, I don't want people to tune out. It's a good list. I think it's a fine list. Important to me. <laughs> so the first game is Earthworm Jim 1 on the Genesis. which uh, is important to me as I was thinking about it because it's the first time that I remember that I played a game and thought this is genuinely funny. Not funny for a game funny, but this is funny. And also funny in a way, in a game literate way. Funny in a way that subverted your expectations about what a game, how a game should play out. I should point out that I am aware that there was a strain of comedy in adventure games before this, but I have never liked adventure games. So I didn't play, I was aware of some of them, but I never played them. I could never get over the mechanics. So Earthworm Jim was right in my sweet spot of games that I would enjoy playing. And for instance, I think it's the, it's not the first boss, but the second boss, you battle through a bunch of, you know, it's hard, you're getting there. There's, I think maybe a timer counting down and you get to the boss and it's a goldfish, a very angry looking goldfish in a goldfish bowl on a pedestal. And you walk up to it and hit it with your whip, which is you, and it falls off the pedestal and smashes and that's, then the level ends. And it's, it's such a shocking <laughs> hilarious moment that is very specific to games and i earthworm jim hit me hard in a way that i don't know that it's remembered that w much at this point but i i will never forget that moment yeah it's a, one of those early examples of a game like you say with that example the boss battle is subverting the convention which in like 1994 when the game comes out you know that's that's early to be to be doing that and it's, it's also funny so you, in the game you play as a as an earthworm but he, he's in this spacesuit and travels around and he's sort of like a superhero right his spacesuit makes him look very muscly and all that which is already funny because you've got the juxtaposition of a you know the yeah the most vulnerable um insect combined with a sort of marvel yeah it's um, a silhouette. genuinely hilarious image 
this worm who's completely helpless outside the suit. And also, he's his main weapon, well, he's got a blaster, but he's got a whip, too, which is just the suit pulling him out of the... It's it's <laughs> yes. it's really funny. And it I don't know if it... Earthworm Jim 1 or 2, it's got a boss named Professor Monkey for a head, which, if you want to know where my sense of humor is, that is exactly it. If you call something Professor Monkey for a head, and that's literally what he is, uh, that makes me laugh. <laughs> yeah. So, were you? Um, where, where are you when you when you get your Mega Drive? Where, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Cleveland, and we were still in. We moved around a lot when I was a kid, but we were back. Oh, I was an adult by by then. But around age, my dad was a lawyer. We were pretty wealthy. I went to private schools and up until I was about 11 and it turned out that a lot of our wealth was because my dad was stealing from his clients uh, and he got caught and disbarred and went to prison for a while and we went from like private schools to me living in the movie Gummo more or less uh, in New Jersey. Wow. Uh, I, I mean, don't be, yeah, you're, you don't have to take it that seriously. It, it all turned out okay. Uh, it was probably a good experience ultimately. Um, but by then I was, you know, in my 20s and living with some guys and we bought a Genesis and I don't remember exactly where I played Earthworm Jim, but it was probably living with, with some buddies. You know, around that time, Genesis was a big part of our lives. And I didn't put it on the list because I don't know that it led to anything, but we went through months and months of Herzog's Why. I don't know if you remember that. It's kind of a proto. Yes. RTS, it isn't it? caused fights. People were kicking holes in the wall of the house. It was a, it was a lifestyle. It, it could have, mm. it could have made the list. Um, and as an honorary... It's, like oh, the, it's the precursor, isn't it, of the real-time strategy. So it came before... Is the game that sort of set up all of that, right? That leads to StarCraft eventually and all yeah. of that stuff. Yeah, and, and I think there's some debate, although it shouldn't be a debate because it's probably clear which one came out first. There was a Dune 2 game maybe on the Amiga that was similar, but uh, Furzog's Y was definitely there at the beginning. Part of the reason, even though it represented a big part of my life, was... It didn't inculcate a love of real-time strategy games. I don't right. play a lot of real-time strategy <laughs> sure, games, sure. but we we loved it. And it was at the time before the internet when we would get off work on a Friday and go to Toys R Us. And just the whole way we, we knew what was coming was because it had come and it was there on the shelves at Toys R Us. And you'd look at the new titles right. and you'd think, well, should we buy this? Yes. No, no massive hype cycle, wasn't there? Was there in those no, days? No, there were magazines, but I don't remember reading a lot of them. Or they were sort of um, after the fact. They were either too far before the game was coming out for it to be relevant, or it was after the game had already come out. Just it? the delay was yeah. was too long. And I, I read that while you were at school, so this would have been I don't know ten years earlier or something. You you did sort of dabble in some game design yourself and had a couple of games. You know when magazine computer magazines would would print out the programming code uh, so that readers could then type it in and play it themselves at home. You had a couple of those published, is that right? Yeah, I had um, in Antic Magazine, which was an Atari magazine. I had two games published when I was in high school. I was probably fifteen or sixteen. Do you remember what they were? Uh, the first one was called Air Raid Two Thousand, which was kind of not. A, it wasn't a great name, but it was. Uh, uh, kind of like a, a side-scrolling shooter, like Scramble. I don't know if you're, that's old. Uh, it was sort of like that. Yeah. 
And then the second game, it was all in basic. The second game was called Arena Psychotica, which was a kind of Tron light cycles, but you were gathering stuff up. Uh, you, you had to pick things up off the board. And that was a basic wrapper around the central gameplay loop was in uh, 6502 assembly. So I'd kind of upped my programming knowledge at that point. Yeah. And then I did a third game, which was like my magnum opus, which was a turn-based tactical strategy game about traveling through time as a modern soldier fighting oh, amazing. Uh, ancient enemies. Well, they had a lot of notes on it, and it was kind of in the transition as I was meeting Chet, uh, who, who was um, going to drop a bomb on my life uh, and lead to, um, uh, yeah, some, some lost years. So, uh, so that one never went through. But as a group, we all also... Our the our core group of friends, say four of us, including Chet, worked for several years on a multiplayer game called Zombie World, which was sort of the precursor to everything else that came. It was funny. It was a it kind of relied a lot on writing item descriptions mm. and monster descriptions, and it led in a lot of ways to Old Ben Murray, and then which led to everything else. Yeah, of course. And so you talk about meeting Chet, who who you founded Old Man Murray with. At what point in the timeline did everything happen at home with with your dad and you meeting Chet? How do you remember how old you were when that all happened, and how old you were when you met Chet? Yeah, the the stuff with my dad was when I was I was probably eleven. Yeah, then, and we moved around uh, for several years, staying with family members or just, I'm not sure what motivated all the moves. We eventually moved back to Cleveland where we moved back in with my dad, even though my parents had divorced, but we were all living together just to save money. Uh, well, your, your, your mom and dad of, were in the same house. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and it wasn't how I mean, it was an apartment, uh, with a cockroach infested crap hole. Uh, and the rest of my family then moved again. I have two brothers and a sister, and they moved with my mom out of state. And I was getting close to the end of high school, so I stayed in Cleveland with my dad. And we were living in an even worse apartment, just the two of us. Uh, I didn't even have a bedroom. I just slept in the living room. This was the, um, I think I've mentioned this before, but my dad went to Yale. He got his law degree from Yale. And so we were living in this this horrible apartment. But the Yale Alumni Review would just keep coming. And it was the only thing I had to smash roaches with. Uh, it was a very convenient roach smashing. So I don't know if uh, any Yale alumni has fallen that that far. So it's during this time that I meet Chet when I'm living in this, uh, before I had moved out on my own yeah. while I'm living with my dad. And I meet Chet through a mutual friend. And he comes over and we hit it off. And from then on, we, you know, we were business partners. We were roommates off and on over, over the years. But this is still, Old Man Murray is still eight or nine or 10 years away from me meeting Chet. And to a certain extent, Old Man Murray, you know, obviously the characters we played in or we wrote from their perspective and Old Man Murray were not us. But there was this thing where we were writing it as we were entering the full flush of adulthood and but the memory of being dissolute early 20 somethings which we very much were was still really fresh in our heads and so some of it some of those characters was work 
this cartoon version of, of how we saw ourselves at the time yes. uh, back then. So we were already writing about this character that never existed in the first place, but also didn't exist anymore inside ourselves very much, except as a, as a memory. You yeah. Know? Interesting. Let's, uh, let's take a break and come to your, your second game, which is from 1999. Can you tell us about it? Uh, it was EverQuest, right? So EverQuest was, well, like I said, we had been working on a multiplayer game. That It was over by that point. I was always a big Ultima fan. It played from Ultima 3 on, it played all the Ultima games. And Ultima Online came out, and we were excited for it. But it quickly became apparent that it wasn't for us. I think Ultima Online worked for a lot of people, but my experience of Ultima Online was this chaotic city that was just a frustrating get killed instantly as soon as you left the confines of the city. I, I It wasn't sticky for us at all. And then EverQuest comes out and solves a lot of these problems. And I remember we played it for a long time and it was the, the sense of adventure and there was enough consequences to make it really tense and discovery that I guess I had always been looking for in D&D and things like that. It was phenomenal. I, it was just a huge impact on me. And then World of Warcraft came out. We played that, but I felt like that, especially in later years, overshot the mark. I played it with my son a few years ago, not the vanilla version, but whatever the most current version. And it almost felt like some sort of cookie clicker game. Like there was no... There was no real sense of discovery or danger. All the things I remember from EverQuest, you know, setting off on a point, not knowing where you're going and actually worrying that there will be consequences for that. I'm not quite sure. I didn't play EverQuest, but but I presume they had clans or something similar. Did you have a group that you were going around with? We had a group, but it wasn't an official clan or anything. And, and yeah. as much as we played it, we weren't serious enough to do I'm assuming EverQuest had raids and stuff. You know, the really high-level content eluded yeah. us, but uh, yeah. it's still a, a really fond memory. I don't know that I'll ever recapture the 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 sense of this is what I've been waiting for. Yes, yeah. Yeah, there's a time when you play an MMO or whatever they call them these days, at that time of your life when you don't have too many responsibilities, you've got loads of free time and you can play quite late. It's a really... Uh, I mean, it's quite a, can become quite a magical memory, can't it? Because it's associated with that time of your life as well, um, hanging out with friends online, all of that kind of thing. Yeah, as an honorable mention, I the, we've stopped playing it as much lately, but my son, who's 12 now, and I have played a lot of Sea of Thieves, which uh, isn't even an MMO. It seems to reject a lot of the grind 
of an MMO, and it's just kind of the sheer pleasure of being in this world. Uh, and we 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 had a pretty great time playing that. It has also the white knuckle tension. You don't have anything to lose, but the battles in Sea of Thieves do feel consequential, partly because you're battling other people, but they're they're real elongated epic battles with these other ships. They're not just somebody walks up to you and hits you for a thousand hit points and you're just dead and then they're gloating yes. over your dead de- dead body. Uh, so it's a yeah. it's an awesome story generator. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. When you start Old Man Murray, you know, it is really, it feels, I, I can't remember when I first started reading it, but it w- wouldn't have been too long after it was started. And it, it was so different to any other writing about video games at that time. Really irreverent, really funny. It felt like the sort of, it felt like comedians rather than people who write about video games. Um, what, what were your influences? You know, where were you, what were you taking in as uh, your sort of comedy food at that time or leading up to it i'm trying to remember it was uh, ever since i was a kid i can distinctly remember my parents had this before everything fell apart they had huge record collection of which 99 percent of it was music and uh and of which i was couldn't have been less interested in but they had a handful 10 or 11 comedy albums that i would listen to over and over and over again really i don't know you know who knows why when you're a kid something connects with you and i had kind of a talent, I guess, for doing funny things. And I would try and make all my school reports funny uh, to the point where the final report I had to do in high school was supposed to be on utopias and science fiction. And I didn't <laughs> want to write. So I I wrote effectively a more clean Old Man Murray-ish sort. It was just pure comedy report for the end yeah. of the year. And I thought, well, even if they fail me, I'll still get through the class with a D and I'll graduate. The teacher was smarter than I was and gave me an incomplete and I never rewrote it. So I ended up not, even though I went through all 12 years, I didn't graduate from high school. I was fed up. So I just went and got my GED. But it, I, I don't remember any specifics about it, except that it had a footnote attached to a dollar that was paper clipped to a page that said there's more where this came from, which I thought was a pretty funny paper related <laughs> joke. They did not think it was funny. I was dragged into the thing. They knew it was, I, I'm angry about this now, 30, 40 years later, but they knew it was yeah. a joke. They must have, yeah. but I still, every, I, I almost feel bad for them that 
I had to go to the principal's office and they had to pretend like this was me seriously trying to bribe uh, the English teacher. <laughs> and everybody had to keep a straight face about it. I was able to keep a straight face to like, wow, I realized early on you're not going to let me graduate because of this. And I'm not rewriting this paper. Anyway, I, I didn't fully. So it's always been important what I was consuming exactly at that. Well, I do know one influence was Spy Magazine. We always enjoyed Spy Magazine, and I think some yes. of the tone Old Man Murray, obviously not as brilliant as many of the things in Spy Magazine, but I always, it was an influence. But other than that, we were just people that comedy was number one in our lives. We were like thinking about it. We liked nothing more than making people laugh, but video games were a close second. So it was just a natural, it didn't seem odd to us at all. It was just, this is the thing we're interested in, and so let's write funny things yeah. about it. Were you ever tempted to try stand-up or, or a different uh, outlet for, for your comedic instincts? No, I was never, I guess I, I was always too afraid to do stand-up. Chet never did stand-up, although he was a theater major and kind of ran, like, you know, broke and performed in plays. But yeah, no, I never, I never did. Yes. Yeah. And um, the... Ha- how soon do you start to attract an audience with with Old Man Murray? You know, it be, it, it, I know this is the relatively early days of the internet, but it felt it felt quite famous, I suppose, at that time. Like everyone sort of knew about it, which is un- unusual, I suppose, for what was essentially you know a, a comedy blog about um, about crates in first person shooters. Yeah, especially a sporadically yeah. <laughs> updated one uh, as well. I think we, I do remember that we put it up and because we were selling games at the time, this was actually the impetus for the whole thing was we were getting these gray market or Chet was, Chet was always the driver of the business side of all of our stuff. He's a much more business minded than I am. And we were selling these games that were gray mites. I don't, you'd have to ask Chet about the whole, how it all worked, but we were selling them over this website and we thought well, let's just put short reviews of these up. And our just natural inclination was to make these reviews funny. And we didn't care. This wasn't our main business. And so we were trying to sell them too hard. So if we didn't like a game or even if we thought the name didn't sound good, we would just say something yeah, uh, snarky about it. And so that started catching on. We had written this because uh, we, we were database programmers and we wrote this. Uh, we just had a little thing that showed us what I, who was looking at it in real time and the IP address. And we started to see that people from IP addresses registered to game companies were reading it. And that was exciting. And we started getting communications from, you know, early on from a bunch of the early Valve employees we, we were talking to and we would play online with them. I can't remember what uh, we were playing, but we sort of became friendly with some of them. And obviously some we weren't, that friendly with because part and parcel of it was making fun of of their uh yeah didn't you get work. some hassle of american mcgee is that right i no i think he actually took whatever we said about him in stride okay although i don't remember a hundred percent now who was genuinely angry and who wasn't you know the thing i think people forget and i don't it's not like I'm pouring over it every day but every once in a while you go back and revisit it and it seems like a a different person like i i probably there's people who are unhappy to hear this but i go back and i'm not like oh shame on me i look back and i'm like that's pretty funny <laughs> who thought this up this is funny and uh 
I can't even remember where this is leading. Oh, the butt of many of the jokes was us. We were clearly imbeciles, like in presenting ourselves as imbeciles. So uh, I think that, you know, maybe it's our fault, but that was, that that's not, I don't know if that's generally yeah, yeah. remembered. Maybe it was too subtle for some of the people that came later and started reading it and who were imbeciles. It's possible. I was like, as I read it now, it doesn't <laughs> seem subtle, but sure. Okay, let's uh, let's look at your, your third game on your perfect console. Can you tell us about it? It is, I, I don't have, the, it, it is Grand Theft Auto 3, right? don't really need an excuse for why Grand Theft Auto 3 might be on any given list of important games, but when I was a kid, little, maybe nine, I don't know the exact age, our neighbor threw away a giant stack of National Lampoons, and that was an early influence as well. I picked up this huge pile of National Lampoons, took them up to my room, and didn't understand a lot of it, but recognize there was something there that was appealing and one of the things that i'll never forget is there was a fake ad for a ghetto train set really detailed and it fascinated me i looked at it and i think i didn't really understand that it wasn't real and i wanted it bad and it always sort of stuck with me grand theft auto 3 among all the other things that it was it was my national lampoon ghetto train set dream come to life uh and i don't even know what to say about right it is it was huge this isn't uh something people haven't heard of a little indie darling it's not a hipster pick this was just a bomb dropped on my life my wife and i were living in duluth at the time minnesota and i was writing at that point i was writing stuff for gate for a lot of the outlets GameSpot, and i can't remember all the different places but i was doing that we were still Old Man Murray was still kind of running on fumes. We would update it every once in a while. I just, I mean, I played Grand Theft Auto nonstop. I, I, this is going to be one of a couple of games I don't have a lot of smart things to say about it. It was <laughs> awesome. The voice acting was awesome. It was genuinely funny. Yeah. Uh, it was this anarchic epic that had a tone that I don't remember having experienced before in a game. And a setting, even though, again, it was Grand Theft Auto 3, so I, I was vaguely aware of Grand Theft Auto 1 and 2, but they, it was such a a leap over those two games yeah. along every axis. Yeah, the, um, the tone is, is so interesting because, you know, it was so enthralled to the to mobster films of Hollywood, right? And it employed many of the voice voice actors who had been actors in those films to sort of lend it that Hollywood sheen. But at the same time, the... You know, it was it was a parody, really, of a, of America, wasn't it? So it had mm-hmm. this interesting, you know, slight conflict in that tone, like serious uh, Hollywood mob films combined with just really silly jokes about how stupid America is, was sort of it. But. Yeah, which you know, okay, I was shaking my fist a little bit at that, at <laughs> have, being in the in the American heartland there. But it was, uh, and it had been a couple of years before they had released a game 
that didn't make a big splash, but that I was really obsessed with for a little bit on the Nintendo 64 called uh, Body Harvest. I don't know if you remember that, which was, nice. it was an alien, an open world alien invasion game where you could jump in and out of vehicles. I, really ambitious for the Nintendo 64. And I'm assuming that a lot of what they learned from that went for, it was DMA, DMA, right? That's, yeah, that's right. That was, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so this was like, body harvest but the body harvest that had been sort of in my head uh with a better setting and tone the science fiction setting was fine in body harvest but it wasn't you know revelatory in any yeah any particular way yeah and i guess the technology had just just about caught up to the vision as well hadn't it with the um, gta you know in terms of a 3d world and all of that stuff so. yeah although it's still at the time i mean it seemed i remember it seeming magical like how could mm-hmm. they pull this off there was no loading and it was it felt huge i know that liberty city it was liberty city in gta 3 i think mm-hmm. yeah is yep tiny compared to the uh sub- subsequent gta games but it felt enormous and there were so many ways so many things to explore and also so many ways to break the game to your advantage which <laughs> is something i always uh enjoy in games and it was yes. fine if you did that yeah no problem yeah wonderful stuff and then, so, so in the early 2000s that uh, you are contacted by Tim Schafer, who had recently left LucasArts Games, um, Lucasfilm Games. I can't remember what they were called at the time, but he'd, he'd moved on to start his own venture, Double Fine. And he invites you, I think, to become, be a writer on their new project, Psychonauts. Do you remember when you received that call or email or however he contacted you? Well, so he contacted me through... There was an editor. I worked with two editors at GameSpot, a guy named Ron Dooland, who I've kind of lost track of, and Greg Kasavin, who you said is going to be on your show, yes. uh, who's still my my good friend, and who, interrupt this to say this, is the greatest game writer that we have produced. He, as a pure game writer, Greg is number one. In terms of thinking about writing for games in, in an interesting way, he's he's awesome. But having said that, he has nothing to do with this story other than he was also there at GameSpot. Rod Doolin was friends with Tim. They all lived in San Francisco, and Tim was looking for a someone to help him write Psychonauts. But also, they couldn't afford or didn't have enough. I don't remember the exact circumstance. They also needed someone who could program a little bit and do some gameplay programming. Mm-hmm. And I happened to fit the bill. And he was aware of Old Man Murray. But Ron vouched for me as just a, a person as well. So... My wife and I, it was at the time we were living in Duluth and she was working there as a nurse and I was just writing. And I flew out to San Francisco and spent a couple days with Tim and we hit it off and they made an offer and I'm my wife and I, we pulled up stakes and moved to San Francisco for, I don't know what it, it ended up being about a year and a half there. Was the game quite underway when you joined or was it right at the very start? No, it was underway. There was a lot done at that point yeah but there was a ton of writing that still needed to be done and it well, no there was a ton of everything that still needed to be done yeah but it was well underway how did it feel moving like as you say from the american heartland out to coastal city san francisco was it was it thrilling or did you feel a bit unsettled no i it wasn't th- i'm not a big city person i right. I, I, I'm, I mean i'm making it sound like i'm sitting here with a piece of haystick and I'm not I don't enjoy uh living in big cities and we were already kind of too old to enjoy you know having 50 bars within 
three feet of you. I did like all the taquerias. The other thing was the work was brutal and nonstop. So we, we didn't really, I didn't have a lot of time to do anything else anyway. Yeah. But I was very at, no offense to San Francisco and people who live in San, I was very happy to leave San Francisco when we left and we moved, uh, well, we moved back to Minnesota, but to St. Paul, uh, my wife started graduate school. And uh, Psychonauts is a dearly beloved game, the the original one in particular, but it didn't, it didn't do that well in terms, I mean, it, it did sell like half a million copies, but in terms of you know, offsetting the development costs and all of that. Um, you know, how did how, how was that experience of working on a project, which I imagine was very intense, and then feeling like it hadn't had perhaps performed how everyone had hoped it might? You know, by the time it shipped, a lot had happened in my life. I, I had left Doublefied, moved back to Minnesota, gotten hired at Valve, <laughs> and moved to Bellevue. So... I when it came out, I was more thrilled that people a that it came out that people really liked it. The financial part of it because I wasn't participating. I mean, you know, I want nice things to happen for Double Fine and for Tim, but you know, my job wasn't based on Psychonauts performing well. So I guess I didn't. I was selfishly more happy that it was well received than it was yeah uh, sold well. Yeah, I see. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, okay, let's let's come to your your fourth game, which is from two thousand and nine. So this is Demon Souls. about discovering some great love late in life you, when you think uh your heart can hold no more love <laughs> demon souls came out there's also a story a triumphant story for me personally because we were working on portal 2 at that at the time when it came out and i was reading about it because people were playing the chinese import version of demon souls because ps3 had no uh territory locking yes and for whatever yeah. reason the chinese and korean version of demon souls were fully translated into english the menus the audio everything so you could just order it from play asia or whatever and, and get it something about it was fascinating to me the the stories i was reading about it and genuinely can't remember now whether I ordered the Chinese copy or I definitely at least got the American copy when it came out. I think it, it had come out, it wasn't a huge wait, it had come out like in March of whatever year it came out in Asia and then I think by September or October the American version is out. So I got it and I was playing it and it's a revelation along a whole bunch of different axes because it subverts not in a funny way like Earthworm Jim, but in a not what you would expect from an RPG, you know, or even a game. You know, the number one rule of game design for whatever reason is it's bad to learn things by die. You're not supposed to do that. Dark Souls said, hell with that. You're going to die a lot. Uh, you know, the persist, the ability to kill an NPC and that NPC is just dead. 
it's dead. You kill them. And the game goes on. You know, they call it, I don't know if they call them video game board games that think it's fail forward. The, the, the insanity of some of their fail forward choices was incredible. Yeah. I honestly think that Dark Souls would be easier to grasp for someone who never played a video game yes. than for someone who had played a lot of video games because it is not what you expect. The heroic part on my in on my part is that I was singing the praises of this thing to everybody on the Portal 2 team. I'm like, you got to play this. Yes. This is incredible. And everybody plays it and bounces off of it. Just like, Whole Paw is crazy. And we should kick him off this team if this is what he thinks is good. But, and here's the happy ending, is literally everyone came around eventually. Yeah. There's something about Demon Souls that even though you hated it first, there's something intriguing about it and you keep going. And if I'm being... um. If I'm just going to be full of myself, maybe it was just that I loved it so much and I was talking about it so much. People were like, well, maybe we should just give it a little bit more uh, time. And yeah. everyone came around and I was I was a hero. Yeah, you've very much been vindicated. Yeah, I was vindicated in a big way. I've liked every every subsequent FromSoft Souls 1 game. Loved them. You know, if I, Demon Souls was the first and has a special place in my heart, but probably I like Bloodborne more. Yeah. Yeah, Bloodborne's the one, isn't it? That's, uh, it stands slightly separately because there haven't been any sort of attempts by From Software to uh, iterate on it, I suppose, in any way. Whereas, like with Dark Souls, there's been numerous sequels where they try and build on it. Whereas Bloodborne's just this sort of thing that stands alone, doesn't it? With its, with its particular yeah. style and rhythms and all of that. Yeah. And Dark Souls is way up I mean, demon souls has a special place because it's the first but dark souls talk about a sequel that yeah gets everything right and takes the promise of the first game it wasn't just promise in the first game and and expands on it in a way that's i don't think there's anything that's not better in dark souls yeah than demon souls yeah yeah it's funny like after a bit of time i suppose you know you're trying to convince people to play it and uh, there was that skepticism in, in the early months uh, around those games and now it's there's a sort of backlash as well isn't there against now they're so popular following elden ring and all of that that there's definitely parts of uh you know, certainly game developers who went on twitter and were saying look it's you know these are all the reasons why those games are back poorly designed and all of that oh. but, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm not uh not very online so i'm glad i'm not because i don't want to hear those idiots and their stupid opinions about <laughs> the souls games i loved i had a great time with Elden ring Elden ring's great they talk about a co- i don't i know nothing about from soft it could be a hellish place to work. I suspect maybe it is because talk about somebody who puts out a lot of games. Yeah, those they, those are big games, and they seem to come out on a in a pretty frantic pace. Yeah, I you, you would probably know more about it than I do. That are there is there talk that FromSoft is just a sweatshop that is a horrible place to work. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I have visited the studio. D- uh, t- oh wow! T- twice, but um, uh, these were that was in slightly earlier days. So I went once for the first Dark Souls and once for Bloodborne. These days, I mean, a game like Elden Ring, I guess they use a lot of contractors. I think there has been some talk of um, punishing overtime and all of that, but yeah. uh, that's not obviously unique to From Software, is it? Um, no. In this and if you're, yeah, if you're. If you're going on a tour as a journalist, I'm assuming they're giving you some Potemkin Village kind of version <laughs> of FromSoft. You're not going to see the, <laughs> yes. the awful. Everyone's smiling through gritted teeth yeah. at you. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it would be good to talk a little bit about about Portal, which is the game, I think, for which you're best known and obviously one of the most dearly beloved games ever made, I think. It was a student project uh, that then got turned into this uh, lavish production. At what point did you come into that process? It was pretty early, I think, after they had been hired by Valve, the Nurbacular drop, the DigiPen kids. I think there was six of them or seven of them. It wasn't entirely clear. I don't think at first what this would turn into, but they put them in a room and said, we'll try and turn, do something with this. And I think as the orange box coalesced into an actual concept of, you know, let's release a bunch of games in one package. This portal seemed like something that could, could be one of those games. One of the hard things about Valve, even back then when it was, I think, less of a flat structure than it is now, is to find your place, though. Find what you're supposed to be working on. And and uh. Chet and I floundered a little bit in terms of what we would be doing. But at some point, I don't know who had the idea or why it came up. Somebody suggested, go talk to the Portal kids and let's put... You know, let's get some writing in there because I think they were having a problem where the puzzles were engaging, but it was so sterile and so dry that it was there was nothing really to pull people through the experience. And so that, yeah, I went down there and uh, I say down there, I think it was on the same floor, but down the hall. And uh, I, I we just started talking about it. I hit it off with them. You know, they're all nice, Kim and Garrett and Realm and Jeep and Dave and uh, other people, three other people whose names are escaping me right now. And you, you, uh, uh, you know, it's interesting you call it quite a sterile environment at that early stage because it is literally in a laboratory, the game's set in a laboratory and you go through these rooms and you use the portal gun to solve them. And all of the comedy and the uh, narrative comes from this AI character, GLaDOS. That jumpsuit you're wearing looks stupid. That's not me talking. It's right here in your file. On other people, it looks fine. But right here, a scientist has noted that on you it looks stupid. Well, what does a neck-bearded old engineer know about fashion? He probably... Oh, wait, it's a she. Still, what does she know? Oh, wait, it says she has a medical degree. In fashion, from France. How long did it take you to, to find her voice? which is so distinct. In a weird way, it was very early on because the first stab at doing something was just, let's just put these little pre-recorded messages at the beginning of any test chambers, just see what that does. It'll at least inject a little bit of personality into it. And the one nice thing about humor is that even if you're not telling a, an epic story, the joke at the beginning and end of the chamber is a reward. It's a roar to get have something funny happen and we were using text to speech just because that was easy to put in and so that was a placeholder in a way uh, as we thought about what we could do and at some point it just occurred to us that we're not going to have a, a traditional enemy or traditional boss so but the the your enemy in the game is the environment itself so if glados is the voice of the environment it's it's as if the entire facility is talking to you that just seemed that worked and people were responding well to the to the pre-recorded messages and so there was always this part of the game even before the story where you would escape for the last quarter of it or whatever and you were back in the behind the scenes areas we called it 
And it was a fairly short mm. leap to go from that to it would be satisfying if this voice that seems sterile and maybe not even, maybe just a recording turns out to be something that's sentient, you know, and it's re and it is now reacting with some panic that you've uh, gotten out. Yes. You know? Yeah, you're like the lab rat that's escaped from the chamber and is running running around now. Right. And and it's there's some bargaining and it's it's worried uh about what's happening. It it's suddenly taking notice, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, of the events of the game. And and it it uh-huh. you know, it all came again the sometimes things are just easier when nobody's expecting you to do anything and so you could just kind of do whatever you want and yeah we were there entertaining <laughs> ourselves uh the good thing is the things that entertained us ended up being entertaining for for other people well one of my previous guests is the um irish comedian dara o'brien and it, he told me that for him the high point of all video game writing is uh when glados performs the song at the end of portal one still alive which is <laughs> performed of course by uh, jonathan coulton um can you, can you just tell me where that idea came from and, and how you executed on it as well? I didn't know. I don't think I knew who Jonathan Colton was, but uh, Kim Swift, who was the project lead on Portal, had gone to see him in concert and thought that it would be a good idea to get him to do a song for the game. And we were still sort of fishing around for the what would happen at the end. It's always a, a tough thing, I guess, in any, any fic- fiction telling, storytelling medium is what's going to happen at the end. And we thought, oh, it would be awesome if at the end of the game, we just had a song. And we knew that Ellen McLean, who is the voice of GLaDOS, was a trained operatic singer and had an awesome voice. And so it was really as simple as that. You know, there was a little bit of skepticism in Valve, but not that much because nobody was paying that much attention. And they seemed to sort of trust that it would be on you say, we're going to have a song at the end of this game. They'd be like, all right. Yeah, okay. You know, you kids and your songs and your your older <laughs> gentleman, middle-aged writer, uh, good for you. So we contacted Jonathan and he said, sure. And we gave him, you know, I didn't write yet any of the song lyrics itself. I just suggested, you know, I told Jonathan, here's kind of what's happening. Here's the repeated, I don't even know if they rise the level of the motifs right. of the game. I mean, he may have played it with yeah. most of the dialogue in it. And he went off and crush it he wrote a great song yeah just everything was so harmonious wasn't it in that game it just built built in such a lovely way um yeah was, it was uh yeah you, you know one of those everything in a game because it's a game is deliberate to a certain extent but it's also just a giant magical accident yeah right right and the, the those conditions that you're talking about that enabled portal one to flourish sort of the lack of expectations and being able to do stuff off by yourself all of that is gone by the time you come to work on the sequel and expectations were very high and as well you know you're now writing i suppose ellen who who you mentioned who plays glados she plays the role of glados mostly quite straight and then you cast stephen merchant the comedian in one of the one of the lead roles and he's sort of an inherently quite funny voice, even just him speaking. Did you find all of that harder, writing for an established comedian and also with all of the contextual pressure? Uh, the contextual pressure was hard. Writing for Stephen wasn't especially hard, partly because there's so much uh, so much recording of him speaking, uh, you know, it, telling you know, he's he had a podcast. We listened to it <laughs> to try and get the rhythms of his speech. <laughs> we had enough recording sessions that, 
we could discover what, even if when you think you know what an actor is going to be good at, it, it's not always clear until you go through a session and find, okay, this is, this is the sweet spot. And we weren't asking him to deviate too much from what his natural comedic persona was, which is a, is a good game making trick because you don't have rehearsal. You don't have a lot of time to get people into character. So you should try and cast, write the role to be sort of something that, you know, the actor is going to be comfortable doing. Right. But, uh, the weight of expectation was very difficult. And I got Jay Pinkerton, who's been my writing partner since long before Portal two, after portal one, before portal two. So I had, you know, the force multiplier having James, a very, very, very funny writer and who I'm compatible with the two of us writing together was uh made it much much easier although yep easier is the fraud but the weight of expectation was the hard part is how do you follow this up this beloved thing in a way that doesn't do damage to the original and is can stand on its own and is going to be Good. Um, okay, let's uh, let's come to your fifth and your your final game, which is from 2017. Can you tell us about yeah. it? So the final game is Slay the Spire. have a lot of smart things about why it's so good but i don't know that any game has ever insinuated its way into my life the way slay the spire has i've already played slay the spire today once already i watch people play slay the spire on well not on twitch i, I watch the youtube <laughs> streams post twitch um but it yeah. is endlessly fascinating to me and i can't honestly tell you why i loved magic back in the day when it first came out i was buying magic cards and not unfortunately not keeping them when you could open a pack and get you know an alpha black lotus or something but the thing i never liked about magic was i i enjoyed playing it i never enjoyed collecting the cards or building decks beforehand so a sealed deck tournament was was my favorite way to play magic even then you you still had the deck building phase beforehand which was too slow for for my taste i i play a lot of board games and i know uh you know dominion was sort of the first i think deck builder where you you get cards and build your deck as part of the process of playing the game which is what slay the spire is and there i was very into a game that came out a year or two before slay the spire called dream quest which i'm not sure if you're familiar with it was no i don't know that one originally came out on ios and it's very similar to slate's a deck builder it has to say the art is crude is to kind of insult crudity i guess the uh it it, it looks it's stick figures now, although <laughs> having said that compared to the generic yeah. kind of professional looking mobile game style it's sort of refreshing like it gives it its own charm in it in its own way but anyway dream quest was awesome i think it was it made a splash in the among game developers because the guy eventually got hired to like be 
one of the leads on Hearthstone or something. Anyway, so then Slate the Spire comes out and I start playing it. And I, I don't know what to tell you. I, I love it. I love it so much. It's an incredible game. Yeah. So I I think it's like the perfect airplane game as well. Not that many of us go on airplanes anymore, but like for that kind of journey, it's so good. Yeah, time just melts away. It does, and, yeah. But it, it's there's so many interesting decisions so often. You're constantly making decisions. I think because it got to the deck building, I don't know, uh, genre early, maybe, and because it's popular, it's more balanced or mm. polished than any other deck builder is likely to ever be. So maybe it's the perfect one. It's got no, sto- no, nobody's trying to put any story into it. It just, you just, you're just playing. You are just playing this game and it is tremendous. And like I said, it, you, you said it came out in 2017, I believe you. So we're going on six years now where I play this mm. game daily. I have played, there's no other game in my life that I've played as often as Slay the Spire and look forward to still playing forever. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a great pick for a uh, for a console in which you only have five games. It's going to give you that longevity for sure. So looking back at your picks, we've got Earthworm Jim, EverQuest, Grand Theft Auto 3, Demon's Souls, and Slay the Spire. That's, uh, that's a pretty spectacular console, I think. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot slightly. Have you got a, a name we can use to market this thing to the world? So not to um, dispel... The mystique of your podcast, but you did you did warn me that it was coming. And naming things is hard. Uh, it's it shouldn't be hard because you could literally name things anything you want, and it doesn't matter if the thing is good. It's it's fun. But we we spend a lot of time agonizing over naming things. Um, and it's also kind of like work. So I was like, hell with this. I'm not going to name it. So what I did was, and this is um, <laughs> you'll be happy to know, I used Chat GPT and asked it to come up with a list of twenty names for a, a badass new console by Eric Woolpop. So with the part that you'll be happy about knowing is that it failed more or less utterly. Yes. So our jobs are still sort of secure. But I kept being like, do the list again, but make it more badass, idiot. You know, <laughs> I feel like I could still, we're still in a world where I can bully uh, chat GPT. And it eventually coughed up the Hellraiser, which I guess was bad, badass enough. It's copyrighted probably, but they can... <laughs> Send their Cenobite lawyers after me when I call my console the Hellraiser. Yeah, I love it. The Hellraiser. Yeah. Perfect. And per- perfect yeah. fit for Demon's Souls as well, I think. Really good. Very nice. Well, hey, thank you so much. It's been amazing to talk to you. I could, I've got lots more I'd like to talk to you about, but um, I'll have to wait, I guess. But before I do let you go, I just wanted to ask you about writing comedy for games. It's a difficult, that's a difficult task, right? There are not that many funny games. The games that tend to be funny are funny for perhaps slapstick reasons. And, um, you know, apart from some of the, you know, Tim Schafer's adventure games and the ones you've worked on, you know, is it possible if you were giving advice to a young aspiring comedic writer who wanted to get into video games. Is there a is there a place there for such a person? I guess my advice is always lately make you know, try and express whatever your comedic viewpoint is in some small game that you make with some friends and get some notice. So there is I think there I'm trying to think of examples of funny guy they they do occur and there's definitely quippy games which I'm maybe not as huge a fan of even though I'm, I'm sure i've contributed to the to to some yeah Clips. but i would just do it there's certainly room for it people like comedy it's hard 
but you know, it's all hard. And, you know, I've obviously been blessed by having incredibly talented people working on these games with me and, and actors who can deliver, you know, you make your life a lot easier if you can hire Steven Merchant right. to write for, or, you know, like for after Nate Bargatze or, uh, you know, Henry Zabrowski that we used for, um, we use hand labs. Anyway, we get a lot of, um, actors who are comfortable doing comedy. Yeah. So Deborah Wilson, we used in, in, uh, uh, desk job. And she, I kind of wish I was just at the beginning of my career because somehow I didn't, we had never worked with her before. She's mind blowing how good she is. And of course you work with, um, Ash Birch as well, who name checked you in her episode. Oh and- yeah. Oh, Ash. I forgot about Ash. She, yeah. she credits you for her whole career in the, in well, the podcast. I, uh, I luckily, yeah, I take a lot of pleasure in my friends succeeding, yeah. like Ash, Greg, uh, which makes me sound more altruistic than I, 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 the only reason I take pleasure in it is because I experienced some success myself. If I hadn't managed to do that, I would be bitter and jealous, <laughs> but it, it'll, some amount of success allows me to be magnanimous about to actually take pleasure in other people's yeah. success. And she's kill. I mean, she's the pupil has become the master. I don't know. She's. Is she writing her own show now? And yes. She's yeah. Starring on shows and writing shows and working with people way more talented than me. And Greg is owns a company, and those guys have blown me out of the water. But luckily, I achieved just amount of the right amount of success to um again to, to feel to, generous, to feel good about there. Yeah, I feel genuinely happy that that they succeeded. Yeah. Um, and, and she's awesome. Yeah, she's really funny. The Hey Ash videos. I mean, that's how obviously we got to know her, and and they were just hilarious we love them bro well eric yeah this has been great it's been it's been i've only ever spoken to you over email as well over the years sort of you know trying to drill you for quotes for pieces i've been working on so it's it's been lovely to <laughs> properly meet you as well and to hear some of your story yeah, it's yeah great. thank you for your time and for and for sharing your story with us really appreciate it well thanks for having me it was a uh, fun except for the picking the five games part which again go straight to hell with your with your <laughs> Stupid five games. That's ridiculous. <laughs> you should have outsourced that to a chat G- GPT as well. See what it came up with. I wish I had thought of that. Pick five <laughs> games that, that should be relevant. I, I, ultimately, if I were to do it again, I'd probably pick the same five games, but I feel more comfortable now. There's just, it's really just about five games that would be interesting to talk yeah, about. Yeah, of course. Because yeah. you, you, they are meaningful. I mean, you've played a lot of games in your life, would be my guess. There's so many. So many games that mean something to you. And, well, here, I want to say one other thing, which is, and this is a tough thing, is that you mostly seem to have game developers so far on. And no matter what games you've played in your life, any game you developed is going to be the most meaningful game in your life because of the epic undertaking that it entails. But you can't just pick uh, five (laughs) games that you made. You just look like a, a jerk. Uh, but if, if that was allowed in the rules, I probably would have just... Yeah. Well, uh, I had a good time. I enjoyed it. If if it, Maybe my games will change, and I'll send you an email. We'll do it again. Soon. Yeah, that would be great. Thanks, Eric. Bro. Sure, thank you. Thank you so much to my guest, Eric Walpole. What a treat to have him on the podcast and to hear his five picks. 
Eric is, uh, as you can tell from that from that talk, a very witty, very knowledgeable person who has created some extremely influential work, not only in his video games, although of course Portal and Portal 2 are just two of the high points really of the medium, uh, not only in terms of their very fine mechanics, but also in terms of their very fine writing. And uh, we heard a clip in the middle of that, which was uh, just gave you a taster of his brilliance there. But as well, you know, Eric and, and his friend Chet, while they were authoring the website Old Man Murray, really did establish a tone that I think is still perceivable on the internet now on reddit uh, on xkcd which you know both of which phil wang the comedian was talking about i mean that really you can trace a line right back to old man murray for some of that tone i'm not suggesting that they were the only ones to write like that but you know they were they were sort of in a minority i would say and certainly writing about video games at the turn of the millennium there was no one else really producing this kind of work and um, and sadly, yeah, not too many places producing that kind of writing anymore either. Listening back to our chat, I did feel a little bit bad about perhaps banging on about um, Portal 3 and specifically uh, the fact that Valve hasn't made too many games. Of course, they did release Half-Life Alex, which by all accounts is a tremendous video game, but you do need you do need an expensive virtual rea- reality headset to be able to enjoy it. Yeah, it would be, you know, it would be nice, wouldn't it, if uh, Valve made a new standalone game, perhaps with a strong story. Uh, of course, as Eric was saying, it's a, it's a much smaller company than perhaps um, Steam implies it is. And of course, they also have uh, Counter-Strike and all of those games that need ongoing maintenance still hugely popular all around the world. So, yeah, I guess uh, I guess everyone is busy over there doing the best that they can. And uh, I just hope that we get to see some fruits of that, those experiments as well. You can write to me at myperfectconsole at gmail.com with any thoughts, with any comments. Thank you to those of you who do and who suggest guests. I really appreciate that. Thank you as well if you follow the podcast at myperfectconsole with the O's removed on Twitter. It's uh, it's lovely to hear your messages and you're just very kind. Thank you for, for your kind words about these endeavours here. If you have been enjoying the podcast and you haven't done so yet, I would appreciate if you could just leave a review, just leave a star rating on Spotify or on iTunes slash podcast, Apple Podcasts. And if you do have a spare 30 seconds, uh, a little review, it does help people to discover the podcast. You can also support the podcast financially by visiting Acast Plus and there you can become an early access supporter for just £3 a month, $3 a month, €3 a month. You will get your episodes 24 hours before the general public and ad free. Okay, it only remains for me to say thank you again for listening this far and I will be back next week with one more guest, five more games and another perfect console. Until then, goodbye.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.